Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies, train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2021, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, give hope and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. And before we get into today's US podcast, if you've had to take time off work because of injury or illness, uh, then you need a strong player on your team. Morris Blackburn is Australia's number one super claims law firm. They can check if you have insurance as part of your super and help you make a super TPD claim. Morris Blackburn fights for fair. Call them on 1-800-111-222 or go to morrisblackburn.com. Dot au. That's morrisblackburn.com.au. Be part of change and fight for fair. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that dives into the progressive issues and campaigns of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And we go back overseas today. We're joined by our, my good buddy, uh, Sam Schneidman, who we haven't spoken to in a while and it's 100 days since the Biden administration was uh, elected and we thought we'd get Sam on the pod to just give us a bit of an update on things, uh, how they're tracking uh, stateside. So uh, that's today's episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon or Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. And if you're using Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and give us a review. And for all of the updates for the show, just follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Tuesday morning in lockdown. No, wait, sorry. It's not lockdown Melbourne. Wow, that was a force of habit. Um, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, anyway, we're t- we, we, we are in Melbourne though, and we're taping on a Tuesday morning. These things are true uh, and uh, it's the hockey playoffs Stanley Cup uh, round one true it started last night Bruins Capitals my team uh, the Bruins and to help me break down Lost to my team ha- help me break down the, the first round is my good buddy Sam Schneiderman welcome to Social Democratic thank you isn't it your favorite uh, isn't it your favorite center left podcast about all things sport it, it, it is. We aren't going to break down the um, Stanley Cup first round. Uh, but I did watch the game last night and I thought of you. Um, I'm I, disappointed uh, Socially Democratic didn't have an episode about uh, the Super League. I thought you for sure would have had something on that. You know, I'd thought about it, but I'd already done a sports podcast with Richard Miles and I was like, I can't, mm. I, I can't take a liberty with my loyal, with our loyal audience when they they come here for politics chat and campaign chat and then i start throwing sport all the time they're gonna be like all right Stephen, you're taking the piss now i'm going and i'm gonna find something else to listen to it's a very competitive industry out there sam when it comes to podcasts it is indeed it is um uh, but uh but i will indulge if you will if uh, our audience will let us indulge just for one moment um you guys won Last night's game in game. overtime, you had your goaltender going out early in the first period and a sort of a unknown, well, a guy who only played four or five games this season, do reasonably well against the Bruins' um, uh, first line. Um, that's a, I think that's a good result for the, the, for the Caps, right? Yeah, couldn't have been better. Winning the first game at home, went into OT, but won in the first five minutes of OT. Uh, with a very shorthanded roster, we have a lot of players out and injured. Uh, you can't ask for a better outcome. A win is a win, baby. When uh, you did get that goal in in overtime, I, I felt that the way that you t- the the cap celebrated that, I think you guys wanted it more. Yeah, well, I think the fact that our team is so shorthanded right now, uh, and the the Bruins are a really solid club. Uh, that that provided a lot of um, validation to uh, and, and confidence for the team. I think. 
Have you, guys, have you guys got home ice? I can't remember who's. Yeah, we, we got home ice. Yeah, okay. We're the second seed. Oh, yeah. We're th- three seed. Yeah, okay. Cool. This is going to be a good series. This will go seven for sure, I think. I think it could go deep for sure. We'll see how tonight goes. Yeah, indeed. It's going to be it's a busy time right now because obviously the hockey playoffs are on. The basketball playoffs are just all start tonight with the Celtics taking on. The Wizards. That's bizarre. Wow. Two Boston teams playing right? two, two Washington teams. Yeah. That only just dawned on me. Don't even talk to me about that. I have no idea. Yeah, I know. No. And they're obviously, the, um, we're 40 games deep into the baseball season, and the Red Sox are surprising everyone. Yes, they are. I, I don't know. It'll be interesting because the Yankees are now coming, coming back online. Yeah. Uh, or they were. And then they like their whole team got COVID, so I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, more of that. We'll see what happens. What, let's once the uh, once we're past the All Star break, then we can then we can talk about it again. Maybe, see who's in first may, place. Maybe we'll do a podcast then. Anyway, okay, we're here to talk about politics. Uh, it's been a while since you and I have spoke, um, and uh, uh, in the back of my mind, I said, "Let's catch up with Sam after a hundred days of the Biden administration." That milestone passed a week or so ago. So I thought we'd get you on and have a bit of a chat about how we think things have gone in the first 100 days of the Biden-Harris uh, administration. Um, before we jump into specifics, um, just your overall thoughts of um, how they've fared since uh, Election Day. Well, there's been so much that's happened since Election Day, obviously, um, not, not least of which was January 6th and the insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, and then there was um, the inauguration, which was positive and reaffirming for our democracy, which I think was not a thing that any American had ever seriously considered under threat until it was. And uh, then we had sort of this massive rollout of vaccines, um, which has really helped to turn the tide of the pandemic in the United States and lift the collective spirits of our of our country, um, but all of that is to say that the Biden like the first hundred days of the Biden Harris, um, or like everything that's happened since Election Day is only part of the story. You know, there's all there's been all these other things that have sort of overshadowed the Biden Harris administration getting off the ground. And I think in many ways, that's a key theme that they've been dealing with rather deftly, in my opinion, uh, and have made it work to their advantage. Um, you know, it's less, uh, things are, are less charged around uh, the presidency than they were for the last four to five years. That's certainly the case. Um, I want to pick up on a bunch of things you just said there, but starting, first of all, starting with, yes, the insurrection, I was watching um, NBC News yesterday lunchtime and a number of the trials of the insurrectionists are happening at the moment but i heard that there was uh, a possibility that there would be a sort of 9-11 style committee being set up and you might need to tell me out of what jurisdiction if that's going to be set up is it the justice it's in congress it will be in congress right and people like kevin mccarthy would be subpoenaed to appear before this committee uh which has got some of those folks worried because even in the current trials that have been happening across the country, there's been inference of communication and links between the insurrectionists and um, members of Republican members of Congress. And if this was to then go into a 9-11 style committee with wide scoping um, exploratory powers that some of these Congress Republican congressmen or congress people would be a little bit worried uh, about the exposure that they would have in terms of how much coordination that they had with the the insurrection. Um, Absolutely. Like, let's just, for the sake of American democracy, let's just go after these pricks, you know, like show no yeah. mercy. What's your thoughts? Well, on I this? think what's what's really interesting, especially on this idea of the commission for the folks who may not remember or don't know the 9-11 commission was put together as this bipartisan commission uh under the auspices of congress 
as sort of a fact-finding expedition to determine how could such an event like 9-11 happen and how do we prevent something like it from happening again. And it's held up as a huge success within American government because uh, it was pursued in a very bipartisan manner. The people on the committee took, or on the commission took uh, real pains to try uh, and keep it uh, apolitical. Uh, it produced an exhaustive report that was published uh, and is still looked at uh, you know, as a case study in good governance. And uh, it helped uh, the country move on uh, from that really sad period. What is obviously different here is that the 9-11 Commission was about an event that was initiated by people who were outside of America and very far away. It was very easy to otherize them. The incidents of January 6th were brought about by people who are very much Americans, and it's hard to uh, cast them as people who are apart from us. The second thing that is different in a commission that would look into what happened on January 6th versus 9-11 is our whole media landscape has changed. Of course, social media did not exist in 2001. And we now find ourselves in not only this post-factual world, but a uh, selective factual world where people are able to sort of build their own realities and it'll be interesting to see, can not only this uh, commission rise above whatever sort of dis and misinformation campaigns that are likely to surround it, but can it also break through and uh, be accepted as fact by uh, a majority of the country? And that's going to be, you know, that's the million-dollar question, and it's not something I'm especially optimistic about. Especially when one group that's involved in the commission has such a vested interest in sort of um, obfuscating their own uh, involvement in fomenting the events that transpired on that day. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be bipartisan like the 9-11 commission was, but certainly folks like uh, Liz Cheney, you'd expect them to, and even Mitch McConnell, I would hope, would um, give support to such uh, an inquiry. Well, the, the other thing is, you know, what this commission does is it ensures that January 6th continues to be a real story in the news. Uh, and, you know... I think the Republicans have shown themselves to be shrewd operators and they will do anything to maximize their electoral success. And so it'll be interesting to see how they're able to, to maneuver that, because I can assure you this, I don't think that Mitch McConnell is going to, uh, Want, is going to do anything to help the January 6th commission if that means it uh, diminishes his chances at becoming the majority leader again. Um, that's a very good point you make there. And, and, that, and that goes to the point that James Carver was making well, maybe a couple of weeks ago. It was like just if, this was, if the Democrats did this, the Republicans wouldn't let up for the next 10 years. Uh, every, oh, time, yeah, every time I mean, they go to the polls, they would smash the Democrats at every opportunity that they had an insurrection. Like if Antifa had, or the radical left had stormed the Capitol and carried on like the way that these nut jobs did, uh, these Trumpers did for uh, the Republican Party, that, that, that we would get crucified. And so, you know, James Carville's view is the, the Democrats have to take the gloves off and absolutely crush the Republicans at every opportunity and remind middle class uh, folks in the suburbs. Of, this is the this is the party you want to vote for, you know. This is the party of insurrection. This is the party that you know it, that hates democracy. Like, absolutely crush them. And in the back of my mind, I'm sort of thinking, you know, and the natural um, moderate in me sort of thinks, no, we, we need to heal the nation. You need to bring people back together again. And but there also has to be accountability. 
And people have to be held to account, not just the morons that actually stormed the damn building, but also the people that let them in the front door as well. And that includes a whole bunch of congressmen that need to get, need to get locked up, you know. How ironic, yeah. lock them up is my chat that I'm going to, you know. <laughs> that, I've already, we've now just got the, uh, the episode's uh, subject title, <laughs> lock them up. Yeah. Like, unbelievable. <laughs> Don't let these people get away with this. This is outrageous. Yeah, it's totally outrageous. I mean, it's it's hard to like. What what do you say about what happened that day? Because I mean, we all everyone could see it, right? It's it's all there for everyone to see, and I think we've just become so inured, at least in the United States, to um, you know this uh, ridiculous spectacle that our politics has become but also the warp speed news cycle that everything is filtered through now. And so um, it's, I think that there is a skepticism out there that there will be a reckoning and, and serious accountability for what happened. We are going to talk about Biden in a moment, but while we're on the Republican Party, uh, obviously the, the most recent news last week was uh, Liz Cheney, who's a uh, high rank, senior high-ranking Republican um, in Congress, got rolled for her position in within the conference. Uh, she was what, what, yeah, she's the third highest-ranking member of the Republicans in the House. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you know, there's the majority leader, that's Kevin McCarthy. Then there's the, the well, the minority leader. That's Kevin McCarthy. Uh, then there's the minority whip, uh, Steve Scalise. Um, and his job is basically to, like, round up votes for bills and various things. And then there's the conference chair. That was Liz Cheney. And her role is to be sort of the chief messenger for congressional Republicans. Um, and so when, you're, when your chief messenger is coming out and continually talking about how deplorable January 6th was and how it was the direct result of Donald Trump and the party needs to move on from Trump. It's kind of tough to, that, that does present uh, an untenable uh, situation for uh, congressional Republicans. So just watching the Republican side right now, I mean, you, you, you don't want to be them. Like I, and I know that I was thinking about this yesterday because Trump won in 2016, I think a lot of us on the left who never thought he would win are now shell-shocked by that moment in time. And there is almost a bogey in the back of our minds that, you know, Trump is... We never, we'd never want to underestimate Trump again uh, because we did it once and look what happened. And it wasn't just winning election. It was in four years that just completely turned the country upside down and we don't want to go back to that. So none of us are... We all think that Trump, if he was to run again in 20, uh, 2024, that he would, he would win. And we all thought he was going to win in, in, 20, in 2020. Um, but if you're the Republican Party right now, I wouldn't want to be the Republican Party right now because they are heavily divided. And the fact that what they've just done to Liz Cheney, who is a, who is a out an open conservative Republican. She's not even a moderate Republican. She's a conservative Republican. And, she, yeah. and she's being rolled by basically, you know, the, the Trump people or the people who have uh, pledged loyalty and fealty to Donald Trump. They're rolling her. Like, that's, yeah. that's a problem for the Republican Party, like, let alone uh, when, yeah. when they're a moderate. Like, I don't want to be the Republican Party right now. And here's the other thing I want to leave with you, and this is, this is the, to the point that we, we as on the left need to remind ourselves, and this isn't a cocky statement this is a statement of fact yes donald trump won the 2016 u.s presidential election but from that moment on he lost every other election he lost control of the house in the midterms of 2018 and then he lost control of the senate and the white house in 2020 so things haven't really been all that great under donald trump for the yeah but on the flip side of that the republicans probably look at the 2020 election and say okay donald trump lost but if you look at it the difference, though, in the popular vote, it was about 7 million votes between Trump and Joe Biden. When you look at the electoral map and you remember that there are 270 votes, electoral votes that are needed to win, the states that sort of comprise the uh, margin of electoral map victory were decided by a collective 40,000 votes. So if there were 40,000 votes 
difference in, you know, a few states like Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia, we'd be having a very different conversation right now. On top of that, uh, the Republican Party, I think, was was encouraged by the outcome of 2020. They went into it with uh, a presidential candidate at the top of the ticket who was historically unpopular, but they actually did way better than expected in the congressional races, actually narrowing the gap between uh, um, Democrats and Republicans in the House to just a handful of seats and uh, almost hanging on to their majority in the Senate and managing to fight it all the way to a 50-50 split. Uh, The other thing is that they... um, absolutely cleaned up on the state level. Uh, So they control uh, a ton of state uh, legislatures, which is really important because um, the United States is going through this once every 10-year period um, around redistricting based on the census that was completed in 2020, which allows uh, for the drawing of congressional maps and districts. Uh, and then on top of all of that, you've got the fact that uh, there are all these um, laws that are being passed at the state level to uh, restrict voting rights and heavily uh, tilt the playing electoral playing field from sort of a process standpoint And then on top of even that, there is a dedicated propaganda outlet for the Republican Party called Fox News and things like Newsmax and OAN. Like straight up propaganda, misinformation, like crazy shit coming out of Tucker Carlson every night. And and then there's like talk radio. So uh, I don't think that the Republicans are playing with that diminished of a hand, if I'll be honest with you. Yeah, and look, you, you make a... I knew you were going to come up with the bloody 40,000 vote um, figure. Um, but <laughs> but I, I will say this, that every election in Western liberal democracies in this COVID era, the incumbent has won. Um, whether it be at a state level here in Australia... Uh, national le- elections that we just saw in um, in in Britain, uh, in 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 Europe, in New Zealand, the only guy that couldn't hold on was Donald Trump. Like everyone around the world right now is voting for security. They're voting, and there's the, no one is taking a risk on the other guy. Pardon, yeah. Pardon my gender language, but no one is taking a risk on the other candidate. They are sticking with who they know, regardless of how shit they are. America didn't. That's how bad Donald Trump was. And not only that... Well, lost, I think that speaks the, to Joe Biden, how, how much of a not a risk he is. He was a known entity to a lot to a lot of people. And I think went into this with, you know, the electorate was, was very comfortable with someone like Joe Biden standing in as a foil to Donald Trump. That is absolutely true. And we'll come to Joe in a moment. And the other point is, you lost... He, he lost the Senate in Georgia. In Georgia. Yeah. Like, I mean, that was di- a direct result of Donald Trump. Yeah. And not only did he lose it, he lost it twice because there were two simultaneous elections happening at the same time with two different candidates and he lost both of them. Like, if I was a Republican yeah. Party, I'd be having a good hard look at myself saying, we are stuffed right now and we need to sort this out and it's only going to get worse because you got this moron down in Mar-a-Lago running the <laughs> Republican Party from the golf course and um, weekend cocktail parties. And meanwhile, the rest of the moderates are up in Washington racking their brain going, where do we go from here? Because we've got midterms to get ready for in, in, you know, in less than 18 months. And, yeah. you know, I would expect, look, and, and we'll, let's, we'll talk about uh, Joe, smoking Joe Biden in the moment, but if he keeps doing a good job, I think that the, the, the Democrats can make gains in the House uh, and hopefully, maybe even I, I haven't actually looked at the Senate and who's up this time, but hopefully, hold on to what they've got in the Senate. It's going to be tough, no question. But uh, yeah, uh, 
there's 2022 is not going to be is, is not the same dynamic as 2010. Let's put it that way. When the Democrats just absolutely got decimated in the first midterm after Obama got elected. What, what are your thoughts about 20? What does 2022 look like from this far out? Well, I think, you know, a lot, uh, a lot is still to transpire between now and then, but, you know, historically speaking, the um, first med- midterm after a presidential election that results in a, a change of party. So like, you know, if the president was a Republican and becomes a Democrat or a Democrat becomes a Republican, usually the pattern holds that it's really bad for the president's party in the first election after that. And, you know, I think a case, you know, the, the Democrats got cleaned out in uh, 2010. Trump lost control of the House in 2018. Uh, there is a thought that the Democrats are at a disadvantage, of course, heading into uh, 2022, if you just look at the patterns of history and, and sort of the map. However... Uh, there is a reason to sort of be optimistic that the Democrats can mitigate the damage. And so, uh, you know, just looking at the map, in terms of uh, the seats that are contested in in the House, only 3% of the 222 seat Democratic majority are in districts that Trump won in 2020, compared to 20% in 2010 that Obama won, or McCain won. So the Democrats are fighting to hold on to stuff in areas where they performed well last time. Uh, It's also going to be interesting, how does the pandemic fit into all of this? So Republicans failed at a national level to contain the pandemic and have been largely opposed to its solutions, especially on that $1.9 trillion relief bill. So are Democrats able to make hay out of that? And then, of course, what crises come up between now and then, and what is Biden able to accomplish? I think Biden's messaging and policy, the political framing around his policies have been shrewdly cast as things to help sort of like the working and middle class and bread and butter American issues of taking care of like American jobs and American families. Um, so we'll, we'll see how much mileage he's able to get out of that. It's uh, 2022, November 2022 is going to be interesting because it's in the back of our minds here, certainly in the southern part of the continent because uh, the Victorian uh, election will be held in the last Saturday in November. Um, and obviously the midterms will be held on the, on the first Tuesday in November 2022. You know, what does the world look like by then? What does the world think about COVID by then? You know, are we, I mean, by the looks of most of America will be fully vaccinated. Maybe um, most of America will have returned to some level of normalcy. I'm sure that structurally the things will change. People will be still working from home a lot and all that kind of stuff. But by and large, stadiums will be full, shopping malls will be full, People are going about their lives. You've had a wonderful summer, all that kind of stuff. So maybe people, it, COVID will now feel like a distant memory. And will, totally. you know, and so, and, and so the question I'm thinking about for both Biden and for Daniel Andrews is when people go to the polls, are they still voting like people are voting right now? That is, they are voting for security. They are voting for, um, they don't want to risk change. Are they prepared when they come to the midterms and, and come to the Victorian state election? Are they prepared to maybe now start to look at the other candidate um, or will it be still at that stage? We're still like, there's a long tail in the sort of COVID experience that we'll, we'll had. I mean, I don't know what that's going to be. I th- you know, who knows, but I think, you know, the dynamic that I, we know for certain is going to be there is there's going to be two things that are playing out. Like one is resentment from sort of the heavy hand of the government coming in closing businesses, shutting things down. Um, I think people will still be very frustrated and angry about that and be looking to sort of respond in some way politically. And then hopefully things 
at least economically, are coming back to life and we're experiencing a bit of a boom. So are people sort of rewarding uh, the politicians for being able to help bring that about? And do they want to keep the good times going? Uh, it'll be really interesting to, to see. The handling of COVID has been the best compare and contrast between the two presidencies. Uh, you know, the oh, one, yeah, like, you can, just, yeah. like, I mean, if we were to go back and listen to some of the episodes that you and I did in the middle of the pandemic, like it was just, I mean, I was respectfully trying to ask questions and saying, what is going on in America right now? Like the way that you've just. The, that'd be like, good question. I had no fucking clue. Yeah, this right. Insane. But now watching the administration and uh, American ingenuity and entrepreneurialism and, uh, uh, and just so this can-do spirit of getting a large population vaccinated has been incredible. Like, it has been truly it's, incredible. Yeah. But it's just too bad we weren't able to uh, use bleach to kill COVID or like, <laughs> you know, the Tide Pod challenge wasn't able to, to wipe out COVID. There's still time, Sam. There's still time. Uh, well, I'm vaccinated, so you know I don't I, I don't need. Thankfully, I don't need to try those therapies. Um, but yeah, that, that would have been. Well, I mean, okay. Great. So here in Australia, so the, and the opposite is happening. So because during COVID, Australia did a very good job of dealing with the outbreak of the virus. Yeah. Uh, what we are not doing a very and you know. No credit goes to Scott Morrison in any way, shape, or form. It all has to go to the premier. Scotty from marketing. Uh, all has to go to the premiers for doing all of the heavy lifting in that in that response. However, we're now looking at our vaccination rollout, and it's 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 shocking. Like it's just it's it's embarrassing how badly handled and botched this has, and the implications that it has on our economy. We can't open up our country. We can't let people in. Uh, there are, you know, 35,000 Australians that may want to come home. They've got an Australian passport that says you can come home. They can't come home. Um, and it, this will have a long-lasting long, a long impact on the Australian economy because he can't freaking do a rollout of a vaccination, whereas in the United States you have. So what is – like you're, you're vaccinated. Uh, I don't think yeah. you'd be in the highest category, right? But you're, even you're vaccinated. What was your experience? Like where did you go get vaccinated? How did this all work? Well, you know, it's just interesting taking out the like the politics of Trump and Republicans and Biden and Democrats from the vaccines for a moment. I think heading into uh, the vaccines, um, I think uh, there was some concern among Americans, like how good are we still at being able to do sort of these big um, logistical uh, challenges. I mean, not only was there sort of the miracle of the science, um, the most effective vaccines are uh, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, which are powered by a new technology called mRNA that had been in development for at least tw 17 to 20 years or so. And this is the first time ever that it's been used successfully in a vaccine. And so there's this, this like the miracle of the scientific breakthrough coupled with, okay, well, we weren't able to um, contain and control the spread of the virus. Masks were such a political issue um, and culture war issue. And we are dealing with this misinformation pandemic as well in the United States are people going to trust and want to get the vaccines? And so I think that was something that a lot of people were skeptical and nervous about. Like, could we still do this? You know, um, and what was interesting is like, we have heard like, obviously sort of the mythologies around going to the moon, winning World War II, the Marshall Plan, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and I think we were looking to see, could, you know, it's, is there a, uh, is that capacity still there? So that was the context, I think, or the frame of mind that a lot of people went into this with. And um, the vaccines were approved shortly after uh, the election. I think maybe even the week after the uh, winner was announced. Yeah, Trump thought it was a conspiracy. And, yeah, yeah, totally. 
And uh, they were sort of rolled out. There were 20 million shots, I think, given out by the time inauguration rolled around. And then we were massively able to accelerate it. And just here in New York, it was pretty, pretty painless, honestly. You know, had to sign up, was able to get one. I, I live in Clinton Hill in Brooklyn and ended up having to go to the Bronx uh, to get it, um, which was like about an hour away. And the, that was just because that's how I, that's where the system kind of slotted me. Uh, and I was happy to do that. I waited in line for like maybe an hour and a half, uh, but it was really well done. You know, we're in line. It was at a, it was at a public high school in the cafeteria and you walk in, you roll up your sleeve. Everyone's really pumped and stoked to be doing it. People are taking selfies. <laughs> you get jabbed. You wait for 15 minutes in a special area, and then you go on your way. And everyone I know has had sort of like this relatively seamless experience um, getting it. Um, so I think, you know, that anxiety that we had – that are, are we still capable of doing big, hard things uh, has been alleviated. We are still able to do that. Um, I think where we're, uh, where we are right now is everyone who has wanted to get a vaccine has gotten a vaccine more or less. And uh, are we going to be able to vaccinate our kids? And are we going to be able to convince the vaccine hesitant and skeptics to to get it um which obviously has big implications on the uh the variants and how long this virus sticks around and how effective the vaccines remain over time but yes it was a really it was a big victory at least for our you know collective confidence here in the united states what are the other things out of the first 100 days that stands out for you that the Biden administration has done effectively? The, re- the rescue plan. I mean, those st- yeah. stimulus check payments, it seemed it took forever to try and get that. I mean, he was trying to negotiate that stuff through Congress and in the end kind of just went alone um, on it. Um, it f- feels to me that there are lessons learned from the first two years of the Obama administration in which... You know, if we recall, Obama went into that election talking about it's not red states and blue states, it's the United States. So I'm going to extend the hand of friendship across the aisle and, you know, bipartisanship and all that kind of stuff and did that and then got basically bashed to death by the Tea Party <laughs> within the Republican Party. And, you know, it was just – they just burned two years of having 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 control of the House and also uh, – remind me, am I correct? It was a filibuster – Protective Proof. Senate. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you look back on those days. You, oh, oh. What would what could you do if you had that now? So I feel like Biden's kind of learned that lesson and said, "All right, here's what I'm going to do. If you're not with me, well, I'm just going to do it anyway. But if you want to get on the on the on the on the train of, um, you know, p- progress, then please come with me. Um, to, what are the things you think that 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 Biden has nailed in the first hundred days when it comes to? Um, legislative or or policy settings? Well, there's no question that um, Biden has brought competency and stability back to the presidency and the government. And there's more sort of predictability uh, for what the government is doing. The, I I would say that um, Biden has sort of like perfectly encapsulated the adage of under-promising and over-delivering, especially when it comes to the vaccines. So, you know, he said, I want to get 100 million shots in the first 100 days, which sounds like a big deal, and it is, but we were sort of like on pace to do that when he was inaugurated, just if we kept up the million shots that we had reached. And what he did was he was able to sort of set goals, establish the competency of his administration, and then he was able to beat those goals. And uh, that, I think, has helped give his presidency footing. Certainly, 
in Congress, but also in the media as a, an administration that's able to handle things effectively and competently and with stability. The other thing is that he's shown that he's willing to do what it takes to get his priorities through Congress when he wants to. So some insider baseball for you. Uh, this um, The first big thing that Joe Biden did was uh, pass a $1.9 trillion stimulus deal, which is like that's a fake number as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> like, it's, like the, it's ridiculous. It's like that number in, um, in Austin Powers, you know, when yeah. Dr. Evil is now in the future and he's still making demands yeah. for uh, what it was in the 60s, $1 million in the US guys laugh. Yeah. It's the flip sure, of that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's absurd. Well, anyway, so he gets that passed, but there is the filibuster in the Senate, which means that 60 senators have to agree to vote on a bill if it's going to be passed. And only then can it be passed on a simple majority. So it's this crazy thing where you have to reach 60 votes to have a vote on something with 50 votes making it pass. It's crazy. 51 votes. Anyway, 10 Republican senators were not going to do that. So he used this uh, parliamentarian pre- parliamentary procedure that we have called budget reconciliation, which means that for certain bills that impact the spending and the budgeting of the government, you don't need to go through normal procedure of getting the 60 votes threshold before you can have the majority vote. You can just go straight to the majority vote. So that's what they did. Now, you can only do that for things that like impact spending. You can't do that for things like gun control or voting rights or the minimum wage, it turns out, uh, which is why he hasn't done that. And so he made a show of trying to uh, come up with a bipartisan compromise. Uh, they weren't able to do that, and they passed the bill. Um, so he's shown that he's willing to, to do that uh, if that's what it takes. And I think we'll see that same dynamic play out on this um, rather large uh, infrastructure bill that uh, is being discussed right now as well. So that, that's what I would say are the key takeaways of the first 100 days. I feel like he's getting a good balance as well uh, of keeping the broad church that is the Democratic party together i think that he's doing all of the good things that um, middle america want to see and um, moderate uh, i guess middle class and working class voters really care about or get their heads around which is stimulus package um uh the family's plan uh the response to covid um investing in that but he's also doing important stuff that uh, more, in the, I guess, the party elites, the more engaged folks living on the coasts in LA and New York, um, which, you know, you know, recommitting to... What are you trying to say? Yeah, yeah people like you, no, I'm joking. Uh, recommitting to the Paris Accord, uh, pausing the construction on the border wall, reversing the, um, the Muslim travel ban and the anti-trans military bill, <laughs> disbanding the 1776 commission, lol. Um, you know, it's sort of, uh, everyone's kind of, I feel like everyone's kind of reasonably happy. Like I don't see um, AOC and that, that, that gang kind of cracking the shits too much maybe a little bit recently they've sort of got a bit antsy in the pantsy about some foreign policy stuff, but by and large on the domestic stuff, um, everyone's reasonably happy. Yeah. So I think a big factor in this is the vaccines and uh, the country turning the tide on COVID, right? That uh, will, it turns out, lift a lot of spirits and moods uh, when you're able to sort of uh, bend the curve on a, invisible killer respiratory virus. Um, So like how to evaluate the first hundred days. I think the vaccine rollout is obviously a success. The poverty fighting uh, portions of the spending bill are broadly popular. One thing that's interesting is um, so in uh, that $1.9 trillion stimulus bill was this thing called the child tax credit which means that 
basically most families that have children will receive a direct cash payment from the government of $250 every single month for every child. It's a huge deal because not only is it a significant expansion of the social safety net, which is a hard fought, hard won game uh, in the U.S., but it also covers over 80% of the children in the United States and by some estimates will cut childhood poverty in half. Uh, so that is, that starts, I think in July, those payments, or maybe they'll start next month. Anyway, they're, they're coming soon and people will start to notice that, uh, and $250 per child per month is like, uh, is a lot. Um, and the United States has, you know, only recently started embracing, um, direct cash payments, uh, and so that that'll be interesting. And then there's a whole, there's a couple of other things that are potential successes for Biden as well. So one thing that um, is uh, uh, being discussed is a bipartisan police reform bill, and it's not going to abolish the police, and it's probably not it's not going to defund the police either. But it might get wins on things like qualified immunity and other aspects um, related to, like, weapons transfers from the Pentagon to local police departments, which, again, is insane. Uh, And then there's sort of this infrastructure bill that could get passed. That gets passed. That's another huge stimulus to the economy and produces a lot of sort of, like, working-class jobs. And there is potential voter right, voting rights legislation, less optimistic that that will get passed um, in the next uh, year or so. But those are three big things that are very much uh, in play. So if he can build off the the successes that he has um, already on the books, uh, especially with those three uh, other um, policy wins, I think you're going to see um, just a continuation of, of people being broadly satisfied with uh, the way that his administration is going so far. His uh, job approval rating at the moment, which was on the 3358 website, is 53%. Um, yeah. Uh, which is So that's kind of interesting because that is good, I guess, if you're president. <laughs> you know, you want to be above 50%, you know. But the other thing is that's low historically compared to presidents in their first 100 days. In fact, I do believe that's the second lowest presidential approval rating in the first 100 days with the exception of Donald Trump for any president, I think, in the last, like, 50 years or something. For me, what that tells me is not that Joe Biden is, like, hated by half the country, but – that this country is very polarized and it's hard for him to get, you know, a 60% of the country on board with being down with what he's doing. Yeah. I think you're on the money. Um, he's 13% uh, uh, better than Trump was after his first 100 days. And he's 7% uh, less than, than Obama was after his first 100 days. And I think you're right. It's just, the country is so polarized and, you know, it's going to take some time, I think for, I mean, who knows? Maybe never. But I'd like to think that that it, that the that, that uh, he will melt the uh, the 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 hearts of some hardened Republicans um, that uh, had basically drank the Kool Aid and bought the Trump bullshit over the last four years and are starting to come back to being a little bit more moderate and um, level-headed. I saw a poll during the week uh, that said that. Uh, 33% of Republican voters acknowledge that that Biden won the election, which is up from where it was at election time. So there are... Hey! I know, I know, I know, I know. That's, yeah, that says a lot that we're excited by that fact. Um, but, you know, it is showing that some Republicans are starting to come out of their winter insanity um, um, and uh, realise that, you know, up is up and down is down. Um, 
the, the infrastructure stuff I'm very excited about. I think that's so it's such good social democratic policy uh, and I really hope that he has success with that. The voting rights stuff is interesting because the, and you talked about it earlier in the program, which was the um, what's happening at a state legislative level, particularly we're seeing in um, in Georgia, and it's going to get. I guess this is going to be almost like a Georgia, Arizona, Texas, everywhere. Yeah, undoing uh, and making it harder for for folks, particularly people of color, to get to the polls and vote. So they're just trying to lock in. Florida. Uh, oh yeah. So the voting rights stuff's important, but I mean, as you said, like that's going to require sixty votes in the Senate. I can't think of any other way that they can get around that. So I, I don't hold out much hope for it, but it is so important. Well, you know, if there's one glimmer of hope, it's that this week Joe Manchin, who is, uh, you know, um, a, a linchpin to a lot of this stuff in the Senate, as a very conservative member of the Democratic Party who is supposedly devoutly committed to bipartisanship, came out with his own voting rights plan that I think was was well-received on the Democratic side. And so we'll see, is he committed to getting it through? Well, you know, can he get nine Democrat or ten Republicans on board? We'll see. No, no, he can't. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, happen. I don't know. But yeah, I, like, I don't look, think so. It, it, look, you know, I get where Manchin's coming from. He's a West Virginia senator. You know, this isn't Democratic heartland. He's trying to hold on to his seat. Um, I think it's good that he's come up with a plan because I want him to take that plan to the Republicans and I want him to watch the Republicans laugh in his face and piss him around for six months and then for him to get angry and then go, you know what, this filibuster's stupid. Let's just get rid of it. Where are you on the filibuster? You and I had an argument one day catching a tram ride back to head office about the filibuster. And I, I, I was... Did a, we? Yeah, we did. I was of the view that the filibuster is stupid and you should get rid of it. And I still am of this view. Where are you right now on this? I'm 100% of that view. It's oh. so stupid. When did you change your mind? Well, I don't <laughs> ever remember being of an opposite mind on that. Um, I, I think, you know, look... Uh, as you sort of acquire lived experience, especially over the last 10 years, and you see sort of how sclerotic uh, American government has become, uh, you start to wonder about its effectiveness and whether not only is the Senate an institution that is representative of the country, spoiler alert, it's not, uh, but also is it capable of producing outcomes that improve the lives of the people in the United States. And that is, you know, obviously increasingly in doubt. Uh, So I think a key aspect of this is the filibuster and uh, it's being used, weaponized to uh, hold up uh, a lot of things that could um, improve uh, life in the United States. If you are, a senator standing up in the Senate and you're, filib- you're filibustering and you're just sitting there reading the phone book. If there was, if there happened to be an insurrection at that same time and people came running into the chamber and then you had to run out, does your speech therefore end? Can you break the filibuster <laughs> with an insurrection? Good question. Ask, I don't Just know. ask you for a friend. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll get back to you on that. I'll put that in the back of my mind and hmm. see. Solutions oriented. That's what we want to be here. Okay. The, the, the other one is the minimum wage. Uh, yeah. I, I mean. Well, I think that's, that's a perfect example of uh, not only how the Senate is unrepresentative of the country, just look at how many people work uh, for minimum wage in this country and what the average uh, net worth of a senator is every senator is worth several million dollars at least i think and uh they're just not in touch with uh the needs of the vast majority of people in this country and the filibuster insulates them from those needs because they don't have to come out and take a stand on these tough issues they can just send an email 
to the clerk of the Senate saying that they filibuster something like an increase in the minimum wage, and therefore it doesn't get through. So that is a perfect example of an issue that has been bogged down because of the presence of the filibuster, which, for the listeners, is this relic of the Jim Crow era because the filibuster was used to hold up the progress of civil rights and voting rights for blacks in the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. Why not test the filibuster and get those senators to come up, get 10 brave Republican senators who constantly well, uh, try there, to pitch themselves as the party of the working man? And that, That's been thrown out, you know, like a filibuster reform. Like, So the way that it works now is you only have to send like an email down to like the clerk of the Senate saying like, I filibuster, and then there, there it is. Oh, but so you don't actually there, need to actually physically go into the chamber and then stand on your feet for 60 hours? No, no. Oh, that is pathetic. It's pathetic, yeah. And so, I like, there is that. a movement to say, okay, what if we keep this filibuster, but you actually have to, like, talk now or something? And um, I think Joe Manchin has come out and said, yeah, I, I don't support changes to the filibuster in any way. Oh, Joe. Joe. Yeah. Come on, yeah, Joe. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, last question. Uh, I had John McTiernan. It's the last one. You better make it good. No, oh, that'll be a good one. I had uh, Joe – sorry, I had Joe. I had uh, John McTiernan on last week. Um, we are talking about the Scottish – saw elections. that. Uh, talking about the Scottish elections, but then broadly speaking about the UK elections. And towards the end, we were speaking about an, uh, an opinion piece that was written by Tony Blair in The New Statesman where he was making the argument that uh, the, the Labor Party in Britain anyway needs to uh, completely deconstruct itself and then reconstruct itself because it's not suited for the times as a social democratic party. Uh, and he was talking about trying to get a balance between the radical ideas of the left, the radical left, and the, the moderate uh, pragmatism uh, of this of the center left uh, or moderates, um, and how to get that balance right. And John John sort of went into a bit of a, a a monologue about it, and then started talking about how we don't look a lot of voters, not all voters, but a lot of voters don't look at politics anymore through the prism of left and right, um, or center left and center right, or hard left and hard right. People who are completely engaged in the political process most certainly do because they understand what their values are and they pick a party that reflects those values. He then went on to talk about people right now are just attracted to Boris Johnson because he is Boris Johnson. And that's why we're seeing uh, swings to the Conservative Party in traditional Labour heartlands in the north of England. That's why we're seeing swings to the, the SNP, the Scottish National Party, in Labour heartland, in the industrial belt, the central belt of um, Scotland, so around Glasgow and Edinburgh. Uh, people aren't voting for those parties. They're voting for those leaders because they like those leaders. And uh, what I, I thought about that a lot during the week. And I thought about, and here's, here comes the sports analogy. Younger people, like I'm a, I'm a Boston sports fan. You know, I love my Red Sox. You know, I love my Bruins. I love my Pats, and uh, and uh, you know, I love my Seas, right? And and I'm a Celtic football fan, and I will follow those clubs till the day they die. However, the younger generation today, they they're not a Celtics fan. They're not a Lakers fan. They're a LeBron fan, and they go wherever LeBron goes. You know, there are certain players and individuals they like. You know, they follow the player. They don't follow the team anymore. Now, now you sound like a boomer sports radio crank oh, who's like complaining about the new generation of I fans. Am. Well, I'm huh, I'm a Gen Xer. Gen, I'm a Gen sports yeah, radio crank. Thank you, thank you. Exactly. Yeah, we're, we're the we're the lost generation that everyone ignores. So maybe that's what's happening in politics. As John was saying this, I was thinking this in my head, going, "Oh my God, it's not just happening in sports; it's happening in politics as well." Um, well, I think it's, you know, not, not necessarily that people are attracted to, like, so, like, pa like, particular leaders as much as celebrity has become more of a uh, defining 
aspect of our politics. So I think like a great um, example of this is that here in you know the New York mayoral race, Andrew Yang has been sort of uh, the undisputed frontrunner from the very beginning by a wide margin because he acquired so much name recognition from running for president. Donald Trump, I think, was the uh, paragon of this uh, this new like paradigm, right? Where like he has acquired, he had acquired so much fame and channeled like all these emotional um, strains that run through our politics in the United States that he was able to capitalize on that. Uh, so I think that that's becoming more of um, more of a defining aspect of our politics is the celebrity aspect. I think beyond that, another way that you know, the traditional battle lines of politics are being recast is you're right, it's less about sort of like these traditional conservative and liberal ideas or like left and right abstractions. And it's becoming more defined along class lines, especially as uh, economic inequality becomes more accelerated in a lot of Western democracies. And so uh, that is something that we're beginning to see a lot of as well. It's, it helps to understand, okay, Donald Trump is this mega, mega you know, he's, I'm not going to pronounce the word right. Megalomaniac. Yeah. Yes. Billionaire. Uh, allegedly. Yet, what's that? He's allegedly a billionaire. We're not totally sure. Allegedly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he's just like out of his mind billionaire, but all of these sort of like um, down and out uh, working class people liked him because he was able to, to tap it using his celebrity to tap into the anxieties and resentments that that particular cohort sort of feels. And um, that, that's going to be an interesting dynamic to see play out here over the next uh, you know, five to 10 years. Well, I think that the interesting thing I do find about it is, is that um, whilst I do, you know, I, I agree with John's theory and I, largely agreed with the sentiments in the Blair piece. There are examples of good social democratic uh, government and policy. And I think that at a state level here in Australia, uh, we've seen that done quite well, not just here in Victoria, but right across the country. There's success in um, WA, Queensland, uh, territories and Victoria. And I think the Biden administration is also doing it as well. They've got a got that good mix of po- strong policy positions that are going to impact on the everyday lives of working people, whether they be middle class or working class. Hundred percent. I mean, like that that child tax credit is a great example of it. Yeah, um, and and I think that what you know what Boris Johnson has been doing, whether you like him or not, um, he's 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 charismatic. But he's also some of the policies that they've been doing have been policies of the centre left, you know. Some of the policies of Scott Morrison, like the, the the Morrison budget they just delivered just recently, is a centre left budget. Like you know, they are spending like drunken sailors right now, um, and it must be breaking their hearts to do it. But I think they're kind of getting comfortable with the idea because you know they're probably going to get re-elected in you know six months time or whatever. So. I think what we're seeing from the right is the right are happy to just pick and pick parts about uh, policy settings that may be left or right, but they're just doing it to whatever, the, whatever uh, to, to ensure they can have electoral success. I think Donald Trump was doing, trying to do that as well, um, but I think he just kind of stuffed up the COVID response, mainly because he's an idiot. Um, uh, but... Uh, I think that you can get that you can get that balance. And social democrats, we have to do the same thing as well. I think we have to pick and choose the bits of policies that aren't necessarily just always what we'd call left wing policy, right? Um, and not yeah. get sucked into. Um, like I think it's good. Like I think the end of John's thesis was that we need to take the ideas, the policy, the diversity of our movement makes us stronger. So that you know, we may think that. Um, you know, AOC and their ideas are crazy and 
we may think that uh, you know that uh, Biden and uh, um, uh, Mansion are old moderate bores, but when you combine those ideas, uh, those policy ideas, and when you combine how the solutions about how you're going to enact them, then it actually makes your movement stronger. Um, and I think that's kind of where we need to be heading uh, as social Democrats for us to have success. Well, I think that's that's certainly what where uh, it's the ch- the course that the Biden administration has has charted for sure. Samuel, lovely to see you again. Always a pleasure, Stephen. Um, and uh, the uh, the New York primaries. Uh, for the mayoral race are coming up in uh, in mid to late June. Maybe we'll get you back on then and have a bit of a chat. I love it. It's always a good time. And there will be lots to discuss between now and then. There will indeed. Well, you take care of yourself with your um, that vaccine you've got. And uh, thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna flex it for sure. The party scene in New York has been pretty good. So for all the people down there in Australia waiting for your vaccines, just hold on a little longer. It'll be very fun once you get them. I'm getting all the vaccines. I'm going to try and get my <laughs> ticket stamp for all of them so I can get the whole package. Yes. All right. Cheers, mate. You should. Cheers. Bye-bye.